Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. Today's guest is the author of Zaytun, an incredible cookbook celebrating the food and foodways and people of Palestine, which is, it's a culture I really don't know a whole lot about. And I realize that the subject of all of this is really pretty fraught for a lot of people. But I like to learn, I like to know, and I thought I would go and speak with the person who has put in a lot of hours in the kitchen, talking to people, and really just putting her whole heart and soul into the mix. On the day that Zaytun came out, I sat down with author Yasmin Khan to ask her all about it. Welcome to Communal Table. I am so thrilled with today's guest, Yasmin Khan, whose book just came out today. If you would care to give us the blurb for it. It's called Zaytun, Recipes from the Palestinian Kitchen. Yes, I I will full on admit up front that I was a little terrified to talk to you because it is a subject that is so deeply fraught and I admit to a tremendous amount of ignorance when it comes to it and it is it is people's lives and safety and well-being and all of this uh, kind of stuff and then I was reading your your gorgeous gorgeous book and the humanity in it is so deeply evident there is a through line in food that we talk about how food brings people together and around the table and stuff this is more fully evidenced in your book than I have seen in just about any book that has come out recently or past or anything you were you were doing a a really special thing here so let's address some of the uh the my ignorant questions you know, um, if we would pa- yeah but just, palestinian food <laughs> yeah i mean just on that point though um that's exactly why i wrote this book um i wanted to and that um just take some of that palatable tension occurs every time anyone says the word Palestinian mm-hmm. at the equation. So kind of like, oh, like we can like exhale, we can talk about it freely. It's um, a wonderful culture. There's lots of incredible food, but also people and also history. And, you know, I was a human rights campaigner before I turned to food writing. And what I really realized early on in my work is that sharing stories of human connection is like the best way to tackle any difficult subject. So we can all relax. Yeah. This is this is this is going to be great. <laughs> Excellent cuz I mean nervousness, anxiety, whatever it is, the fear of awkwardness is what destroys us from the soul outward. I, I tend to think once you give a name to something, you can you can Put it into real terms and and have it. Nobody never nobody ever died of being embarrassed. I think yeah. you might feel like it. And being point. honest and say yes. this is hard, mm-hmm. this is fraught. Yeah, it's okay to yeah. all be a bit nervous about it. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's only by starting to have those conversations that I think we can move forward. And of course, the best thing about food is that not only does it provide a great entry point, but the conversations around a dinner table are often a really relaxed place to explore things. This is uh, this is very, very true. So let's, let's talk about how you got to the place that you did, because I'm so interested in your work as a human rights campaigner and a lawyer, yes? I did a law degree, a law. Um, and then decided I probably couldn't keep a face straight enough to stand up in court. <laughs> so I, I, I segued into working for human rights charities. So I worked on deaths in custody, 
so deaths after police shootings. I worked for trade unions on employment rights. And then I also worked on like international development human rights. Did you come from a family that uh, supported that kind of work, those conversations, these conversations you had around the table growing up? Were they big and outward reaching? What? Tell me about those. Yeah, that is exactly what our family dinner tables were like. They were raucous, they were political, they, it's where I learned history, it's where I learned politics. Um, you know, my dad is from Pakistan and my mom's from Iran, and that's where they met. And then they ended up leaving in the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution, which is a very difficult and fraught time. Um, and my family were political activists in Iran against the kind of Islamic regime and, you know, really paid the price for that in terms of being killed, being imprisoned. And so our lives weren't detached and our dining table wasn't detached from human rights because there was no separation. Um, and so in a way, it just became a subject that was very natural for me to, to care about and be involved in. And you grew up in England, yes? I did, okay. yeah. And the conversations there around around human rights, specifically about Palestinian rights. I was reading somewhere that people, somebody was trying to tell you that Palestinian food didn't exist. Yeah, so I did a um, very mainstream, you know, weekend TV show where I went on and shared some recipes from the book and, you know, all of a sudden got a bunch of tweets saying, well, but, you know, there's no such place as Palestine. Palestinian food doesn't exist. Palestinians don't exist. And I was like, chill, you know, that's just... You know, yeah. Well, so I just want to say this book has been out for a while in the UK, so you, you've been having these discussions for a while. I have, but it's very different in the UK than in the US. I mean, that was one example, and actually the only example I can find of mm -hmm. you know six months of extensive press work of getting any kind of what you could call negativity. Um, I think in Europe in general, we're more comfortable talking about the Israel-Palestine question. I mean, it was the British mandate of Palestine that existed um, just before the state of Israel was created. So, you know, the Brits understand their role as colonial powers in that region. Um, and I think there's a more kind of natural affinity, I guess, with um, discussing about the region in a in a way that actually honors the rights of Palestinians, in a way that here, for some reason, you know, feels a bit more contentious just to be like, should people have equal rights? I mean, it's kind of like a no-brainer. It's, it's one of those things where coming into this, you know, I had the thing up my spine, like, okay, so we're talking about this thing that I don't have a huge working knowledge of it because it is hard to get one because anybody you talk to in the States has a very, very particular opinion and how you should talk about it. And it never really feels okay to go in there and say, like, I don't know some things. Could you explain it to me in a really incredibly balanced way? So, Did you feel that the book was able to do that? Absolutely, because you focused on individual people. Um, I'm interested in the story where you talked about going to Jerusalem for the first time and palpably experiencing that, and especially about the occupation and how that affects daily movement of people, and then physically seeing some of the equipment that is involved in this. Could you talk about those first moments? Why did you decide to go there? And then what were your feelings when you got there? Yeah, so the first time I went was in 2009 when working for a British nonprofit, um, a charity. And, um, I don't think anything really prepares you for what you see when you kind of see the physical apparatus of the Israeli occupation. And by that, I mean 
um, walls that are, I don't know, like 10 meters tall, um, um, checkpoints kind of with windows where you kind of can't see a soldier, but perhaps you just see a gun. Teenage soldiers, you know, like that are constricted, you know, like a 20-year-old, 19-year-old kid, you know, pointing at a bunch of Palestinians as they're showing their papers. Um, it was so dehumanizing, actually. That's what I really felt, that I, I couldn't believe in the, in the 21st century that this was happening in such a casual way. Um, yeah, it was really d- disturbing. So on that first visit, how long were you there and how were you able to experience the food that you eventually wrote about? How, you go into a lot of people's personal kitchens in this. How, did, how, did, how do you make that entree to someone's house and they feel safe, you feel safe? Yeah, well, my methodology is that... I start off by, for both of my books, for the Saffron Tales, which is about Iran, and with this one, I like to work with local photographers. Um, So I worked with a female photographer, Raya Mana, a Palestinian woman from Haifa. And um, so I had kind of Raya's introduction, really, to her favorite food places, but then also, you know, it's quite easy in that place, actually, once you start telling people the project that you're doing, you'll be like, oh, well, well, so-and-so in Nazareth makes the best, you know, baklava, and like, you must go to this, you know, patisserie, in in Ramallah and then well I know you know someone who knows someone whose aunt makes the best kibbe and so there was a real fluidity to it sometimes I'd be like well I know that that's a great producer I want to meet when I was visiting like the olive harvest and and being with farmers in the north of the West Bank but then sometimes it would be you know I'll be visiting a, a winery this incredible Palestinian winery in the Galilee and all of a sudden I'm talking to a Palestinian who's on Israeli master chef and then she invites me to her home and it just flowed and and I like to you know I I don't tend to just fly in and out of a region I like to stay and do things slowly um and that's how you get the best stories as well as the best recipes yeah so talk to me about recipes and the cult because every culture has different ways of preserving recipes some are in oral tradition some are written down some are in cookbooks is there any sort of standard for how recipes are kept there well you know it's a very oral tradition based um culture both in terms of poetry and stories and and recipes uh so of course you know you had many of those things of you know nobody actually is measuring anything or has got a written down recipe it'll just be you know well a handful of this and a pinch of that and I'm kind of like scrabbling around really quite <laughs> so what's going on but um what I tried to do in the book is create a mixture of recipes some that are, are traditional classic wines made in a more yeah, authentic way, I guess. Something like the moussaka, which is these kind of roast chicken with allspice and sumac that you that you ply like layer over flatbreads and cover in their juices. So like that is as classic as you can get. But then I also have got recipes in there that are inspired by people I met or conversations I had or fresh produce. Um, just a couple of hours ago, I was making. Um, a, a fig, olive, and honey tapenade, mm. which um, came from again this cooperative I visited in the north of the West Bank that were inco- that were making lovely olive and honey tapenades, and also trying to get Palestinians. It was a Palestinian cooperative to use capers that grow wild in the West Bank. So, yeah, I really wanted to give a taste of modern Palestine and what modern Palestinians are eating. Where is the overlap with Israeli food on there? Well, you know that's a really good question. I think, you know. 
the different communities that have been living in that region, you know, whether they're, they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, you know, they've been inhabiting the same bit of land for thousands of years. So there is naturally lots of overlap, you know, in the food that is eaten. I think what's interesting about modern Israeli food is obviously Israel's a very young country, you know, it's 70 years old. And it, Israel was you know, obviously created with a huge immigration of, from Jewish communities all over the world. So it's got a very unique um, food culture, which I guess encompasses all of that, you know, whether they're kind of Iranian Jews or Iraqi Jews or Polish Jews. So there's a real um, medley, I think, of flavors. I think, and obviously some of those include traditional Palestinian dishes because, you know, of the indigenous population there. I think where Palestinian food um, has its own unique attributes, it's in things like the cuisine of Gaza that's so unique, you know, with this flavor palette of of, gin, of garlic and green chili and dill. Um, or in the food of the West Bank, which has incredible kind of celebratory dishes like mansaf, which is this lamb stew cooked in a, a fermented yogurt sauce, you know, really, really kind of punchy flavors. Um, so yeah, I think that that hopefully explains yeah, yeah. some of the And again, I, I have a million ignorant questions for you. Yeah, but no, you, these are good. Um, you had written about there being maybe four different kinds of the Palestinian food. Can you sort of walk us through that for people who don't necessarily have a grounding in this? Sure. Um, I'd say that Palestinian food can be split into three, oh, three. regional Sorry, three. areas. Um, so... One I kind of like to call the food from the Galilee, which is in the north of Israel. And that's the food that we most, you know, associate with like classic Levantine food. So we're talking like citrus um, based salads like tabbouleh and fatouche and stuffed eggplants and braised okra, lots of vegetables, very plant based. Then you have the food of the West Bank, um, where it's a lot drier. Um, so the food is more kind of bread and meat based. Um, so, for example, like that Musakan dish, kind of roast chicken layered onto meats or, um, you know, lamb stews. You know, the food tends to be a little bit heavier. Um, then you have the food from Gaza, which traditionally is very kind of seafood heavy, lots of sardines, lots of shrimp, um, and then really spicy, lots of green chilies and dill and, and garlic. Um, but of course, I think it's really important to note that all of these cuisines are, are constantly evolving and certainly in the case of Gaza are almost completely under threat because whilst they may have been the traditional foods of Gaza because of the blockade over the last 10 years, um, you know, Gazans can't fish anymore. So a lot of their traditional dishes have ended up being now morphed into ones that basically just incorporate lentils, you know, because I mean, you know, 80% of Gazans are de dependent on food aid now just to survive. I mean, I think one of the cruelest things that can be done to a culture is to be separated from or divided from food waste. That is, mm. you know, I, I read about you know, refugee communities where they're being airlifted in food, which is technically sustenance, but it's very Western mm. kind of stuff. And that's dehumanizing to do that and there was a moving part in your book about saying about how daily movements around the city are not they can't be counted on necessarily depending on who is doing the policing that day so these recipes have to be fairly adaptable imagine I can't get this thing today 
So can you talk about how people weather those decisions or is that is just built into recipes? I think one of the most moving interviews that I did was with this Palestinian singer. She was like an opera singer. Um, and it was in Jerusalem. And we were making fatouche, this, you know, salad made from kind of lettuce and, and toasted bread and fresh tomatoes and things. And, you know, I knew, I'd known a lot about kind of how the, the, the occupation kind of limits people's mobility, but she really drummed it home to me just about saying, look, on a day-to-day basis, I don't know what will happen in my life. I don't know if, you know, my kids will be able to go to college. I don't know if I'll be able to get to work. I don't know if I'll be able to go shopping. Um, and it's that, that day-to-day lack of control over your own life. She said that that was the thing that was, for her, the hardest bit because there was, you know will I see you tonight? Inshallah, you know, like it was just hard to know. And um, living with that level of anxiety, I think, um, is very hard. But what was so incredible for me to see was the fact that actually, you know, the resilience and the joy that I kept seeing over and over again in this situation, often at the dining table, was something that for me just actually felt so inspiring and made me realize that actually, you know, Palestinians are resilient, humans are resilient, you can't really crush the human spirit. Um, yeah. As much as people may try. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you talk about, a lot about walls and borders being very, very loaded in there. They're, are they visually omnipresent? Yeah, very visually omni, omnipresent. You can see it in my book. And I think the, the place where perhaps it's the most striking is Bethlehem. You know, for me, you know, I went to a Church of England school, like Bethlehem is just what I associate with like baby Jesus, with like this beautiful kind of nativity story. Um, and then you go to modern day Bethlehem um, and the church and the nativity is there. So you go and pay your respects. And but then you kind of look around and, um, you know, there is this huge gray concrete walls, you know, surrounding refugee camps, cutting through communities. Um, and uh, I'm going to tell the story. Please but, you do. know, you can see if you want to put it in or whatever. But um, so on the day that I arrived into um, Israel for my second research trip um, was the day of the US election. Oh my. <laughs> and I was at Tel Aviv airport and I met this really lovely kind of uh, Jewish woman from, well, she was from Washington and we were both going to uh, Jerusalem. So we thought we'll just split a cab. So we just got into a cab and the taxi driver was like, hey, where are you from? He was Israeli. And, you know, she just answered. She's like, oh, I'm from the States. And he was like, oh, great. Yeah, Trump. It's the election day today. Yeah, we really love Trump. And, you know, to the woman, uh, I mean, I stayed out of it. She was just like, well, you know, I'm American. You know, actually, like, there are some issues here. Da, da, da. And she started having this debate with him. And then the taxi driver was like, no, no, we like Trump. He's going to build a wall. He's going to build a wall like we built to keep out the Arabs. And at this point, it's a true story. I was just like, I'm taping this. This is like, you know, for my, for my you know, I'm just like, okay, this is interesting. And so then it was fascinating because this woman, you know, this, this American Jewish woman would start this really robust debate with him about walls, about, you know, American identity, about what it means, about immigration. And it really drilled home to me that, yes, the situation in Israel and, and Palestine is extreme, but some of the issues raised are ones that we see threads of here in the US. We definitely see it in the UK with Brexit. This whole issue of fear of the other, of borders, of this idea that you can somehow build an artificial wall to kind of take away all of your problems. You know, it. I've seen it in Bethlehem. It only, you know, damages communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, separating people and separating people from 
the humanity and the ideas of people who are different from them is a deeply dangerous thing. It's not a sign that thing. you're winning also. <laughs> no. And you know, this is what I remember one of, um, one of the people I interviewed said. He was just like, well, you know... Uh, Oh, actually, I can't remember the quote now, but it was it was very much in that spirit that I it's, saw that walls don't uh, last forever. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, how do you keep up your hope? It, you know, this this you know, and he was like, well, walls don't last forever. But the, you know, the I, I always encourage people. You know, Israel's such a big tourist destination. And I always encourage people, you know, just to nip over to Bethlehem. It's just so close to Jerusalem and just see it for yourself, because um, once you start seeing how these things work, you can't help but be moved. I mean, I grew up Catholic mm. and that being such a, you know, a symbol of, you know, birth and hope and, and all that, I did not know that there are these physical mm. things in place. So let's talk about um, going to eat while you're mm. in Jerusalem. The culture there, is it more eating out? Is it eating in? Is it a mixture of it? You have a friend. How do you eat with your friend? Do you do it out? Do you do it at their home? What happens? Oh, it's a real mixture, I think. Um, I'd say that, you know, the weather is warm in that part of the world. So there is a lovely culture of kind of cafes and being able to sit outside. Um, Obviously, grilled meats. It is the Middle East, so it's a great place for that. Um, But I'd say a real mix, you know. I think certainly amongst kind of the younger generation of Palestinians, you know, there's, you know, they're going to want to go to bars, have go to cafes and really interesting stuff happens there. I mean, I was in this really lovely um, bar in, in Ramallah, um, you know, with, you know, all filled with Palestinians, drinking Palestinian beer. And um, one of the, the, the people that worked there kind of brought over some food for us. And I had this incredible sandwich that was like a chia butter and it had thick wedges of roasted butternut squash and like some toasted quinoa and some tahini. And it was just Oh, and, and, and like fried aubergine, eggplant, sorry. And it was just an incredible sandwich. And I remember saying to someone, oh my God, that's great. I have to put a version of that in my book. And, you know, someone there was just like, but, you know, this isn't Palestinian. Uh, you know, and I was like, well, I'm in Ramallah. This was made by a Palestinian chef. You're all Palestinian. So actually, where does this, you know, where does the, the authenticity debate go? So I think I really enjoyed a lot of, about eating out because I got to experience things like that. But then, you know, there's nothing sometimes better than going to a, you know, often a Palestinian mama's house and getting her to show you how to knead an olive oil and yogurt enriched dough or to hand uh, mold uh, kibbe, which are these uh, kind of small American football shaped pa- uh, meatballs of lamb and kind of encrusted in a, in a bulgur wheat case. Uh, that they just make by hand. Oh, I don't know. There's there's so much joy to be found both outside and inside someone's home. Oh my God, I could listen to you describe dishes all day long. <laughs> like, I mean, looking at that book and like enough, I want to eat every single page of that, but then hearing you talk about it as, as well. So that question of authenticity, that's such an interesting thing because when you are removed from you know, a country that doesn't exist anymore, like it exists in another state how do you who defines what that thing is and especially in terms of the food like who when when you when you decided to write the book how did you define what Palestinian food got to be Mm, it's a really good question I mean I kept I I like to keep things easy you know Uh, it's a complicated enough area anyway so Palestinian food is what Palestinians cook and eat you know that's Mm -hmm. it and um my work I think 
because so much of it is about travel, it's about snapshots of contemporary life in places, whether it was like Iran or Palestine here. Um, you know, I think there's lots of great books and writers that can go into history and provenance and, you know, family family recipes. But my work is very much like, okay, if you are in Haifa today and you're Palestinian, what are you going to be eating? What's life like today? How do the dishes you eat reflect what's going on? So I just decided to make it modern and, and not get too tied up in knots about um, some of those questions. I think also as an outsider, I felt that part of my role was actually just to witness what was going on. And I think that's so important in history to generally do that. And I think that's one of the strengths an outsider can bring um, because I think people need to witness what's going on there. It's, it's a word that has come up for me a lot recently, the word witness, the like, I see you in this, mm. you know, how you are. This thing is valid. Mm. It's happening. I think there's so much gaslighting going on in the world right now that it's important to have somebody to to see it, to say, yes, this is this is the thing. I see you and your your humanity here. Mm. That's a that's a lovely gift to be able to, to mm. give to somebody. And you know, whatever state it happens to be, whether it's cultural, whether it's you know, seeing somebody in their anxiety over over something, whether it's you know a situation where they're you know political situation where they're being told not to believe their eyes. This is a deeply valid thing to be able to do. Um, and I read somewhere. Please correct me if I'm wrong. That you got home and you weren't sure how to write. Talk oh to my me god, about it was that. so bad. <laughs> I, no, I. I, I Fully understand. You like books, you know. I've written the one. There's yeah. a reason I haven't done one for a few years. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. So I came back after seeing everything I'd seen and listening to everything I'd listened to. Um, and I, I think like anybody who who visits the region um, was really overwhelmed. Um, in the past, I think it was easier for me to channel my, okay, I'm going to work for a nonprofit, I'm going to lobby, or I'm going to, I don't know, do a press release or something. It felt kind of tangible politics. But with this, you know, writing a cookbook, how, how I really struggled with the question of how can I do justice to what I've seen and heard, just also celebrating and sharing uh, and honoring a culture that I think is important. Um, and wanting to do the both, because, you know, life isn't sometimes... I think you see it more in the travel food TV genre than in the cookbooks. But you see in cookbooks as well, like travel food writing can just be like, oh my God, I'm in this amazing market and life's so great and it's so joyous and people are so kind. And, and it's it's very vacuous, actually. Yeah. And it doesn't really go into the context. Um, and so, yeah, I grappled with that. I grappled with tone. Um, I grappled with sensitivity and... I feel so grateful um, for my publishers and my editors just to actually really give me free reign on that. And in the end, after tying myself in knots for ages and ages and ages and not get starting the book, um, I just decided to write about what happened. <laughs> I mean, that's a great way to go. <laughs> and so what happened sometimes was really hard. Sometimes it was really sad. Sometimes it was really fun. Sometimes it was really exciting. It was everything. And it's okay to write about everything. We don't need to sanitize things just for the sake of them, you know. And I think our, med our social media culture does that to us anyway, that we all have to pretend that everything's great all the time. So I just wanted to not do that. I fully believe, <laughs> I absolutely believe in how 
important that is to show food that isn't pretty to show our feelings that are that are not pretty at all it doesn't help anyone mm. to not talk about uh, this stuff it makes it okay and the fact that you are able to tell these difficult stories in this objectively beautiful book I think is a really great way to to put that in there um, you made an editorial decision that's so like very is deliberate and thoughtful about not putting in Israeli voices in there and can you talk about that decision I can um, so it was interesting I started I got commissioned to write a book about Palestinian food and then some people started saying to me but are you including Israeli voices and mm. I was like mm, that's a, do you ask that of Israeli writers like are you writing like does Michael Solomonov get asked that like why aren't there Palestinian voices in your book it's just like an interesting thing for me so I got asked it a few times and then I realized that this was obviously something that was an important issue um and so I just thought I'd talk about it and yeah as I say in the book in my years of and for the research of the book as well I stayed with Israeli friends in Tel Aviv I've um, worked with Israeli NGOs and non-profits I've you know, definitely enjoyed the food of great Israeli chefs in both New York and London. But I really wanted to create the space in this book to celebrate um, Palestinian voices because it's okay to just talk about Palestinian voices and to honor their culture. That doesn't always need to be, um, yeah, it doesn't always need to be kind of conflated. I think there's a really good conversation just in culture in general right now talking about that is it is okay to have spaces for marginalized people. Um, I was uh, at the Strand last night doing an event about another friend's book who came out and there was another writer there who I admire greatly, Feminista Jones. And she uh, wrote a book about like reclaiming spaces and especially specifically for women of color. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important to have spaces that are for LGBTQ people. I think it's, it's, it's that. So that's and also like, you know, I, I think it's important for me to be really clear. I mean, yeah. The issue facing the Palestinian people is one of the key human rights issues of our time. You know, there are two million people in Gaza that are blockaded. Mm. Um, you know, every day, you know, we hear of horrible human rights atrocities happening by the Israeli state. I mean, this isn't, in all my years of human rights work, I think the main message I've always said to people that this isn't a conflict between two sides. You know, this is a state that is very powerful. Um, and armed and supported by the West, um, you know, repressing a stateless people. Like there is no, like, uh, what's the word? Oh man, I lost my thread. What was She's I doing a good hand gesture, yeah. however, with sort of a balance that is, <laughs> yeah. It's, anyway, we'll come back to that. But just before that, I just want to um, say something about what we were talking about earlier about kind of trying to encompass everything mm -hmm. and getting stuck on yeah. the book. So <laughs> the buffet problem, I've heard it, it called. <laughs> so I decided to open my book with the fact that I was detained at Tel Aviv airport, mm -hmm. um, only because that was a very hard way to, to enter the country. And also because I just wanted to be honest about how hard writing these books can be. You know, um, I think, you know, Tel Aviv is really celebrated as this great culinary hub, and it is. It's got incredible restaurants and an incredible food scene. Um, but your ability to access it is completely dependent on your ethnicity, you know? So um, I just wanted to say, look, as, as someone of Muslim heritage, 
it's not possible for me to even enter this place without going through quite aggressive and hostile and frightening, like really frightening. I was quite traumatized by mm. some of those, you know, interrogations. Um, and so kind of just, I couldn't, I didn't want to kind of start the book with some kind of, I was wandering through an olive yeah, grove. You people know, have covered that. It's you all. Know, and just be like, hey, this is what happened, but it's okay. I got in and then I had a great time, yeah. you know. So that honesty is very important to me. And uh, there were difficulties getting to Gaza. I couldn't get to Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much impossible for people to get in or out of Gaza for the last 11 years. Um, the people of Gaza, that's 2 million people, um, held in an area of 25 miles long, around six miles wide, um, yeah, have been held in what the UN calls the world's largest open air prison. Um, yeah, so I wasn't getting in there. I <laughs> once talked to a chef who has a restaurant there. And wow, fantastic. Uh, lived in a constant state of trauma. I remember mm. I, I met him and he was in this, this state of panic. I was trying to get people to breathe. Mm. I, I spend a lot of time talking to chefs about mental health. And I was saying, can you stop and breathe? He's like, I don't have time to stop and breathe. And I'm like, you're doing it now or else you'd be dead. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I was like, we need to consciously like have you do this because he was a very young man. Mm. And I, the tension and the, it was, it was so deep within him that it just, it informed every muscle me movement that he made. That, that he made and it was it was such a thing and then I saw him the next day and he had breathed a little and I saw him two years later mm. he had internalized the breathing but still like you know was living in this you know fairly fraught situation and you know that's that I mean internalizing that I mean li living in that kind of situation the food I mean I'm, I'm so interested in the food that comes out of that mm. and how that is reflected in it do you find there's geared toward comfort in the food what are they or is it just about access and feeding yourself How I does think it at the moment the it's just about survival yeah I think that's where we're at I mean what I did in the book because yeah. I couldn't travel there is that I visited Gaza kitchens um through Skype yeah uh or by cooking with people in the diaspora yeah. um and one of my most powerful interviews in the whole book actually was with this guy Omar who I talked to when I, I was via Skype from New York City actually and and he's a blogger and a really passionate cook. And we had this whole like, incredible conversation. And he kind of talked me through maklube, which is really um, bountiful rice dish, which is layered with um, vegetables such as kind of peppers and, again, eggplants and cauliflower. Um, and then you turn it over. And uh, that way. So it comes out um, uh, upside down. And that's what uh, maklube means. So it's really colorful. And you talk me through the whole recipe. And there's a recipe for it in the book. Um, and then we just started talking about produce and ingredients and things. And he just shared this story that stayed with me forever where he said, oh, you know, I was just getting some vegetables from the garden. And I was like, oh, that's great. Because that just sounds so joyous, you know, vegetables from the garden. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, you know, we, we white phosphorus was used against us. That's a chemical weapon uh, in the 2009 war by the Israeli army. And so there's been a spike in cancer rates. And so, like, we don't really know, like, from the carrots, from the vegetables, like, the vegetables contaminated because they're from the soil. And I was just so struck with it because, you know, like, all over the world, the story of I went to my garden and got vegetables is, like, the, like it's, like, peak, like, I'm so happy, life is so good. I'm enjoying it. And yet he had, people were, he was explaining to me how he was afraid of eating vegetables 
from his garden. Do you know what I mean? Like it's the thing is, I can't know what you mean. Like I, I hear it up here, but my body is never going to know. Mm. That's so intense that it's good God. Mm. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that we're never going to know unless we live it ourselves. And that the, fa- the fact that you're able to translate through that mm-hmm. through food, and I, I think it says a lot that that was your way that you could see into the kitchens and stuff. I think that is, you know, that speaks a lot about the, the circumstance of it. But what's more important uh, at a time when a group of, you know, what, well, let me say this, um, for me, there couldn't be anything more important than seeing what I saw and translating it mm-hmm. into recipes that people take home, into their homes, cook from, honor everything that you know yeah. has come from Palestinian culture. Because I think there's such a lot of um, strength that people can get by knowing that people see them and people respect them and people value recipes and cultural heritage um that that's very powerful you know it 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 creates a ripple of of solidarity but also i mean it's it's damn good food you know like i don't want to like make out that this is just all like oh right on book or whatever you know i think one of the 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 things that I found the most exciting was I would be having these experiences of like, wow, that's really intense, or I've seen something really like hard or difficult. And then all of a sudden being quite, you know, uh, a, a, you know, someone who loves their food, you within like half an hour with this very same person who you've had an intense conversation with, you're having like the most incredible meal of your life with like hummus is like the silkiest and most ethereal light that you've ever had it and crisp orbs of crunchy falafel and these like pickles made from beetroot and turnip and like washed it all down with this really bright um mint lemonade and you just you you know I always I say in the book you know Palestinian food feels so alive and in a region that feels like it's dying I appreciate that more than ever yeah and what is your during all of this because it's being witness to this is a really tough thing to do and and telling these stories listening to people and making them feel very seen and heard is important work but it it also it 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 costs something to you too so what what was your self-care during the process of having these conversations, writing the book? How did you tend to your needs during this? It's a very good question, because I did burn out from working on these topics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I came back from the trip and I was like, oh God, I'm really stressed. And my friends were like, you literally burnt out from working on this topic five years ago. Why have you come back to it? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think, um, you know, it sounds a bit cheesy, but I, I learned a lot from my burnout seven years ago about the importance of self-care. And I've become one of those people that's, even when I'm traveling, as I'm doing a lot at the moment, I'm quite um, obsessed with routine now. That's very important to me. And I have a I have a daily yoga and meditation practice, which is something that I don't think I could do this kind of work if I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I allow myself to rest a lot more than I think perhaps I used to, or certainly more than I think a lot of people in this industry do. Um, I, I allow myself to, yeah, take things at a slower pace, which again, I think there's just this 
general trend to try and do as much as you can, as quickly as you can on everything. And I mean, I don't know, maybe people are happy who do that. I know it doesn't work for me. Um, and then the other classic one, which makes a huge difference for me, I, I really don't think social media is my friend. I don't think it's good for my yeah my mental health I mean I really enjoy it I love connecting with people mm -hmm. I find it really entertaining I definitely love it but um yeah I really put strict boundaries around it you know I what I tend to do on a Friday is I delete all the like social media apps from my phone Smart. then I revisit them on Monday it takes like 30 seconds to download them again but it just means that a weekend there's no temptation to scroll which like we all do oh we all uh, do <laughs> you know an hour of my life has just gone by looking at cat videos. I, for but dogs, Everyone for should me. do it. Everyone should do it. Or like just even for a day. Yeah. Um, even if you just wake up on, on a Saturday and you're like, I'm just going to delete them for today. That'll be fine. Everything will be okay. I go into airplane mode. Oh, is, is the that's too easy? I, I know I, it's I, a little yeah. hard, but I I I've started. Um, I was I you know did this panel last night and I was asking everybody on it, what's your self care? Mm. And I realized I put my phone in in um, airplane mode, and the phone just the phone part of it is crucial because I uh, read a lot of books on my phone on on Kindle. Mm. And last weekend, I I read um, Tara Westover's Educated mm. and just gave myself the pleasure of I was under a gravity blanket during that, and it was a really beautiful What's thing. What's a gravity blanket? Oh, it's one of those weighted blankets. It's really good for people with anxiety. It feels like you're being hugged. Oh. Mine is 15 pounds and it's, wow. it's uh, it, you know, when you go to the dentist and they put that lead apron on it, it's not unlike that. How interesting. I'm going to look that up. You would really love this thing. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. I'd love for you to talk me through um, a, re a recipe in here that you think I don't know, speaks to you for some reason, whether it tells a story or if it's just something that you think like, hey, if, if someone wants to make this recipe, maybe it'll help you understand some things. It's just something you feel is really represented there. All right, I know which one. God, that photography is luscious. And you said that's a local... There's three photographers in the book. There was uh, Raya uh, Manar, who was from Haifa, and she did photography in Israel and the West Bank. Um, there's Hossem Salem, who did the photography in Gaza and then just sent it to the, us, which obviously he couldn't get out and we couldn't get in. Um, and then there was Matt Russell, who did the food photography in London. Mm. So, yeah. All right. So the dish I always recommend that people make from the book is my personal, one of my favorites. And it's roast eggplant with spiced chickpeas and tomatoes. Uh, do you guys call them garbanzo bees or chickpeas? I'm really confused. I grew up calling them garbanzo, but I come from an Italian family. Mm. So, but chick, chickpeas is what most people use. All right. Um, so it's called moussaka, uh, which is, you know, we f are familiar with from Greek cuisine, but it's kind of different. So forget mm. about that. And the dish is etched in my mind forever because I had it in the most beautiful of surroundings. It was a full moon. I was in Ramallah sat outside in a courtyard. Um, I'd just been to visit this uh, yoga class, yoga school that exists there, and I'd come back with some of the teachers, and they were like, uh, the woman whose house I was with was just, you know, a classic yoga teacher, hippie, so there's like chickens running around, you know, she's kind of we're all wrapped up in like blankets. Um, but she brought this dish out um, as one of uh, one dish in a meze spread. And in Palestinian cooking, you, you often have many small dishes. And what it is, is that it's roast eggplant um, 
mixed with a kind of a garlicky um, allspice and cinnamon flavored tomato sauce. And that is a very Palestinian combination. Like I never even thought about using allspice in savory cooking until I started exploring the Palestinian kitchen. Because I mean, you know, I'm sure you're the same in, in the US. In the UK, we just use allspice for like cakes or cookies. It's sweet, yeah. Yeah. But Honestly, put it in a tomato sauce. It will revolutionize your sauce. So now I just put allspice in everything savory. Um, it's true. And um, so yeah, this is like a lovely stew. And you, you serve it at room temperature. Also great for anyone mm. who, like like me, if you've got people around, you don't want to be like fussing at the last minute over food, which I never do. I always like to have everything ready in advance. Um, and you, you eat it scooped up with bread. And it's just so great because the, the eggplant is properly kind of roasted in olive oil. So it's kind of got that melt in your mouth texture. And then you've got plump chickpeas and this tomato, you know, aromatic tomato sauce. I just love it. And, you know, the emphasis on seasonality and plant-based food is another big takeaway from the Palestinian kitchen. And this dish really, both for my memory of it under a full moon and for how exquisite it tastes is is the one dish I recommend people start with. Oh my gosh, I want everybody to cook this and get this book. Um, I have five questions okay. that I ask everybody and uh, yeah, think about them as, as much as you need. There, there's one that throws people. Okay. Uh, actually, no, fun. it's been a different one, like throwing people. Um, it's easy stuff. What is your comfort food? Oh have so many. I'm really into comfort. Um, <laughs> Teach me your ways, please. I really am. Um, yeah, my partner always says that like, I put comfort at the forefront of everything. Um, mm, I think I'm going to have to go with the Iranian dish, Rorme Sabzi. I will explain it to you. It is a really... Um, hearty lamb stew made with red kidney beans and like a kilo of herbs and dried limes and it's it's I guess it's the dish that and it's got a lot of fenugreek in it so it smells very uh yeah it, it, the smell reminds me of home it reminds me of my mom it's ah uh, there's just everything about it you know it feels like a warm hug I I closed my eyes talking oh about my that. I, I know like I went to your place yeah. is so, so I love, uh, I was actually just talking with our, our team about a chef who I used to work with who I adore, and he introduced me to cuckoo sabzi. Mm. So does sabzi mean lots of herbs? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah, that, that, that cuckoo that he made was, oh my God, I make it all the time now, and it is the most glorious thing, I, and I want to make the dish you just talked about. It's in the Saffron Tales. Uh, yes. Oh, <laughs> folks, you should also get her lovely book, this, The Saffron Tales, that it is about, do you see... Iranian or Persian cuisine? So uh, I say Iranian, and the book starts with that, actually. Okay. <laughs> so Iran is the name of the country, and Iranians have always called Iran, Iran. Mm -hmm. um, but Persia was the name given to Iran by the ancient Greeks, and therefore that's how it's become known in the West. Um, it's a bit like how, you know, Germany... The Germans called their country Deutschland. You know, like it's, it's very common for countries to call themselves different things than we do in English. Um, 
But I think in the US, because of the fraught political relationship that the US government and the Iranian government have had, there's, had, there's been a tendency in the last 30 years for Iranians to call themselves Persian. Because, you know, like Persian, like you think of like carpets and the cats and Shirazada, and it's very like evocative and beautiful. And then you think of Iran and like you do not think that. So in, in my book, The Saffron Tales, I used them the two of them interchangeably and I kind of talk about why that is and why a lot of Iranians especially in the US and especially the younger Iranians are trying to reclaim Iran as being like like a word that we all use without being afraid of it. Thank you for answering that question because it's been on my mind for a long time. Um, What is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Such a good question. I mean I'm a very emotional person so. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Um, emotional in what way? You tell me. Made you feel something other than just a sort of gratitude of, hey, this is lovely. Bear with me for a sec. Oh, sorry. I, wanna, I used yeah. to phrase this question as, what is the last meal that you had that made you cry? Oh. But... <laughs> If you want to answer that, because crying is all different yeah, emotions. Yeah, no, let me have a th- I don't know why I'm having a brain freeze about it's that. It's all right. I'll take emotions a are tough and weird. <laughs> oh, okay. I've got the story. Okay, do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, this is going to make someone laugh. So, I think the last time I cried over a meal was when my fiance proposed to me. <laughs> In a, and it was like an accidental uh, proposal because I think he was planning to do it a few weeks later after he'd got the ring. But we were, yeah, we were in a pub in London uh, having a Sunday roast. So it was a roast chicken. It was like a very like English story, this. And yeah, I think it kind of it came up in conversation then. And then like, you know, I was just like, really, is this happening in the pub? Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> roast chicken and roast potatoes and gravy and yeah. Oh, that's kind of perfect. <laughs> People do these elaborate proposals. I was like, my hair was wet and I was on the couch. Yeah. You know, um, what is the last meal that someone cooked for you in their home? Oh, no one does that anymore. <gasps> that bumps me out. Oh. People always want to want me to cook for them. So it's just such a joy when someone um, cooks for me. Um, actually, like my, my fiance cooks for me all the time. I shouldn't say that. Like having just told <laughs> that, that other story. Um, when was the last time? Do you know what? It's been so... Oh, let's have a little think. Ah, it was my friend Carrie, and she's Peruvian. Um, And I went around to her house, and she made this great stew um, made with, like, sweet potatoes and eggplant, and she kind of served it with quinoa, and then she kind of made a big point of it being like, look, I'm Peruvian, we eat quinoa. I feel like I I can't serve anyone quinoa anymore (laughs) without it being, like, a cliche. So we had a good laugh about that. And it was really nice because it was, like, a really warming, yeah, warming stew. That sounds beautiful. What's living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook them oh, I love it. this te- this has been throwing people oh my god this is hard isn't it all right <laughs> see and what would i cook them okay um yeah it's hard not to think of ones that have passed away isn't it right like that's uh, the thing it's like i would like, make this for david bowie obviously yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And by the way, I asked this question, so it's like that Oprah thing about saying it out loud, so it happens. So this is willing this oh. into existence. Oh, I like it. Okay, now I'm going <laughs> to... Who will you draw to you? Oh, God, there's so many. You know what? I would cook. Do you know Damon Alburn? Yeah. Yeah. I'd cook for Damon Alburn. Like, I feel like he's a super... Well, I love... I love the music of Blur, but he's also super political, doing lots of great work um, around the Middle East. He's doing some brilliant work with like the Syrian kind of orchestra. Um, so I'd cook for him and I'd, what, what would I cook him? What would you cook Damon Alburn? <laughs> I'd cook him fisindun, which is my favorite Iranian stew. It's made with ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses. So it's kind of really thick and creamy with this kind of sweet and sour tang. I'd make it with some chicken. I mean, maybe he's veggie. I could do it with eggplant. Um, I don't mind. But Damon, you're welcome anytime. Oh my God, pomegranate molasses are the best thing. Oh God, I love them. I put them in drinks. I put them in everything. And that's just one of those flavors that like I had not had before. And now I need in my life all the time. Yeah. I feel so lucky um, growing up in a half Iranian household where like pomegranates were around all the time. I feel like with pomegranates now, again, they've almost become like a parody of themselves a little bit. It's like everybody loves pomegranates. And I was just like, no, but I really do. Like I really <laughs> did from like the beginning. And um, I have this story that I like to share that when I was a toddler and living in Iran, um, you know, every morning when my mom would be going to work, I would just like grab onto her legs in that clingy toddler way, like, ah, don't go to work, ah, crying. And in order to appease me, she'd say, Yasmin, I need to go to work to earn some money so I can buy you pomegranates. And I'd practically <laughs> shove her out of the door when I heard this. And um, that's a true story that my mom loves to tell. And I just think, you know, my pomegranate obsession started early. So I feel very fortunate to be writing these books where I get to go places where they have pomegranates. Oh my, get that pomegranate money. <laughs> I know, can I get sponsored by pomegranates? Is it possible? <laughs> by big pomegranate. Yeah. Final question. You have five uninterrupted moments for self-care. What do you do? Um, yeah, that's really easy, actually. I, um, I sit cross-legged on the floor and I close my eyes and I sit up straight and I breathe. Like, that's it. It's really easy. Um, and I just watch my breath going in and I watch my breath going out and my mind goes all over the place, but that's okay. Um, and then I just really focus on trying to ground. I'm a very like up there, ah, ch chatty, flighty person. And so the best thing for me is to just be as grounded as possible. I love that. Yasmin Khan, thank you so much. And may everybody go forth and cook from this gorgeous book. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest today, Yasmin Khan. Please go explore Zaytun. It's a glorious labor of love. And you can find her on social at Yasmin underscore Khan. Thank you so much to our producers, Jennifer Martnick and Alicia Cabral. Thank you to Douglas Wagner for our jaunty theme song. You can find more about the podcast on Food and Wine or on our YouTube channel. And please go and find us on your favorite podcast platform. Give us those stars, those ratings. They really help people find us and can help us continue to have these conversations. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. And please tell me what you'd like to hear about, who you'd like to hear from. Thank you so much. And take care of yourself until the next time. Mm -hmm.